Hi everyone and welcome to this latest episode of the Brexit and Beyond podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. I'm Arnon Menon and I'm delighted today to be joined by Mark Galliotti, who's an expert on modern Russia, an honorary professor at UCL, has his own must-listen podcast in Moscow's shadows and is, and I always I thought this was a typo when I read it, the author of 24 books about Russia. <laughs> Never mind the quality, feel the width. <laughs> That's just insane, 24 books. Anyway, your latest book, Mark, welcome, by the way, was A Short History of Russia. And it's with that that I want to start, really, if that's okay. What is the place of Ukraine within Russian folklore? And is this idea that Putin seems wedded to, that Ukraine should actually be part of Russia, widely held? That's an interesting question about whether it's widely held. I mean, to start with the position of Ukraine, which is one of these questions where, you know, really to answer it, it would take the next four hours. And I somehow think that your audience would be a little bit out of patience by that stage. I mean, broadly speaking, the very deep roots of what we now think of as Russia or and the culture thereof was to a large extent, you know, way back in the early medieval era anchored around Kiev or Kiev, which is you know, still known as the mother of Russian cities, even if at the moment Putin seems actively to be seeking to commit matricide. Since then, that has still become part of the kind of, as you say, it's almost folk myths of, of Russia. Now, in fact, Ukraine has been controlled by someone else, Poles, Lithuanians, all, all kinds of different people, for more time than it's actually been within Russian's control. Like all countries, especially all countries that don't have a very obvious mountain or sea barriers around them, the borders have morphed and the identity has changed. So, I mean, I think what we are now seeing is absolutely a, a country which clearly has all kinds of cultural and historical resonances with Russia, but nonetheless is a country in and of itself. But exactly, it's for people like Putin absolutely part of Russia's historical and cultural patrimony, and therefore not a real country. I mean, Putin himself has said this, you know, Ukraine is not a real country, and the Ukrainians are not a real people. And this obviously helped inform his disastrous initial strategy in his invasion, in which he thought the Ukrainian state would just crumble at the first push. As regards most Russians, it's very difficult to tell, especially at the moment, because it is such a a hot-button political issue. And in some ways, if you try and survey Russians, they will as often as not say what they know they are meant to say, rather than necessarily what they think. But the thing that strikes me is, yes, there is a sort of a general sense of a kind of a Slavic brotherhood. The Belarusians are Russians and the Ukrainians. And there is a simple caricature, which is in some ways that the kind of the Belarusians are the Scandinavians, Russians. They are the little bit more sort of dour, efficient, unexcitable ones. Whereas the Ukrainians have all the passion and the music and the good food. And carrying with that is a simple assumption that basically the Ukrainians are also the incompetent Slavs. So there is a sense that they are part of a family. But I don't think for most Russians, it's genuinely believed that Ukraine does not have an identity in and of itself. But like with all family issues, and I think family is the best way of thinking about it, it's complicated. And was that part of the miscalculation then? Did Putin really think that the Russian forces would be welcomed? Was that an assumption behind the invasion, do you think? It does really seem to be the case. And it's not just about what he says, because in a way we can't trust what he says. But in terms of how the invasion was configured, 
the fact that instead of the usual Russian way of war, which, which would have started with a massive and comprehensive bombardment to crater every runway, to target every troop concentration, and inevitably lead to a lot of what is euphemistically described as collateral damage, i.e. civilian casualties, followed by a very sort of systematic combined arms offensive. Instead, you had a rather limited bombardment. And then this kind of bizarre spectacle of just a couple of companies of paratroopers who seemed to think that they could just motor into the middle of Kiev and arrest the government and apply a new one. So, yes, this does seem to have been the miscalculation. And I think the problem is this. Beware amateur historians. Putin clearly sort of thinks of himself as as some kind of historical expert monkey. He's produced a series of deeply, deeply unscholarly articles where he just cherry picks the bits of history that fit his argument, which, of course, proper historians would never, ever do. But the trouble is that you know, in this kind of system, you know, when you have been essentially the absolute monarch of your state for 22 years, when you clearly have increasingly surrounded yourself by yes-men, ideological mini-me's, and people who understand that their job is to tell the boss what the boss wants to hear rather than what the boss needs to hear. In that circumstance, no one's going to tell him and say, look, this, 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 this is a historical nonsense and the Ukrainians are not going to be welcoming you with flowers and salt and bread. But yeah, that seems to have been his assumption. And, you know, lots of us got it wrong about this invasion. I'm sort of wondering, what did we get wrong? Did we exaggerate the strength of the Russian military or underestimate the strength of the Ukrainian military? I think it's a complex one. I mean, obviously, a lot of what we got wrong was actually whether or not Putin would invade. Because the irony was, right up to the point when the first tank crossed the border, Putin was in effect winning. He'd assembled this huge force on Ukraine's borders that was really an exercise in coercive diplomacy. It was absolutely scaring away investors. The Ukrainian economy was in deep, deep trouble. Procession of Western leaders were heading to Moscow to meet Putin, which is exactly the way he was he likes to be this sort of focal point that the world is coming to him. And certain Western governments were beginning to put pressure on Zelensky to try and get him to make concessions to the Russians, precisely because they were hoping to avert war. And if he'd been truly Machiavellian, he would have just basically kept that up. So, you know, it's a question of, you know, was he going to invade? And I think it probably was literally at the last minute that he made that final decision. But then when he invaded, in some ways, the answer is yes. Obviously, the Ukrainians have demonstrated them to be you know, phenomenally ferocious in their defense of their country and also have spent the last eight years ever since the annexation of Crimea in 2014, very effectively working out how they would resist a Russian invasion. Secondly, yeah, as you say, the the Russian forces have proven to be less competent and less effective than we had expected. But in fairness to them, and I I mean, I don't know why I'm trying to think in fairness to the the invaders who committed such atrocities as as the massacres at Bucha and so forth. But to understand it, it, it is clear that precisely that this was not the war that the generals train and prepare for. They weren't given the kind of notice that they would generally need because Putin was so convinced that this operation would basically take two weeks. Kiev would fall in two days and the whole operation would be two weeks. The supplies and the logistics were there for a two-week operation. And so in many ways, you know, this was a war that was fought badly with bad tactics and so forth. But the whole basic strategic premise was flawed. And in a way, that's, that's what we couldn't have predicted. We couldn't have predicted that Putin would decide that he was, along with a master historian and everything, everything else, was also a generalissimo who could dictate strategy and that it would work out so well. One of the things we spend a lot of time discussing is whether or not Putin himself can be seen as a rational actor, 
whether he can be dealt with in that kind of way. Do you think that's a, a useful analytical question to be asking about him? Do you think that's how we should approach thinking about Putin? Yes. I mean, look, I think that there are aspects of the current Putin that are disturbing. He certainly is a rather different Putin from the one that we remember from pre-COVID days. And whether it's COVID that is a cause is another matter. But, you know, he used to be that he presented himself as the cool, calm chief executive of the nation. Yeah. And in the last six weeks, we have seen a much more emotional, much less controlled Putin visible. I mean, there's real venom and vitriol when he talks about Ukraine and so forth. So there is something there. But on balance, I think it is useful to think of him as a rational actor who is making decisions based on often exceedingly poor and biased data. Because if nothing else, if we just simply say, well, he's mad, we are more or less abdicating Mm -hmm. any opportunity or responsibility to try and predict what he's going to do. And we clearly need to try and work out what are his parameters, what what is he after, what is going to influence him? Because we're trying to influence him through sanctions and everything else. Yeah. And the only way that that can be at all a meaningful process is if we have some sense of which are the inputs that might actually affect him. And I suppose related to that is the whole debate about an off-ramp, whether or not you know we can find some way of ending this conflict that allows him to come out of it claiming a modicum of success. Do you see a possibility for that? I mean, and I suppose there's two sides to that question. One, whether there's something he'll be satisfied with, and two, whether politically the West can offer that anymore because opinion has turned so solidly you know, you hear more and more. I was very struck by the economist last week talking about why Zelensky must win. And of course, I mean, that does raise the danger that we in the West become committed to defeating Putin at the cost of the last Ukrainian. There are sort of two wars essentially being fought at the moment. There is a rather 20th century war in Ukraine as the Ukrainians fight against the Russian forces. And there is a very 21st century war, which is fought largely but not exclusively through economic warfare but also information warfare, cultural warfare, all these other kinds of things, which is being fought by the West against Russia. And at the moment, these are in tandem, but that could change. Now, in terms of an off-ramp, I mean, look, my view has always been that some kind of peace, which actually allows Ukrainians to precisely not be being killed, is a good thing. But of course, it has to be the peace that the Ukrainians are willing to accept. And it did look as if there was a possibility for some kind of deal that essentially would give the Russians Crimea, which pretty much every Russian does actually believe is genuinely Russian, and until the 1950s was actually part of Russia. And perhaps the the People's Republics of the Donbass, these territories, simply because, frankly, trying to reincorporate them would be a phenomenally difficult and expensive task for, for Kiev. I suspect that uh, Bucha and potentially other, God help us all, cases of massacres, in some ways will make that even less likely to happen. I think it, it makes it harder for Zelensky to give the sort of deal which would essentially be rewarding the Russians in any way, shape or form. And also, I think it's, it's hardening positions in the West about precisely the degree to which Putin must essentially suffer for for what he's doing. You know, we, we may not ever be able to get him into a war crimes tribunal. So we have to think about what is regarded as the next best thing. And the trouble is that without said off-ramps, as I said, at the moment, I really can't see them. This is a war that is unlikely to end because it it looks, assuming that the Russians are consolidating in the east and the southeast, which is what they're doing now, they will probably be able to hold that and maybe slightly expand the areas under their control. I mean, clearly the days when they could think about taking over all of East Ukraine, let alone the whole of Ukraine, 
Those are long since gone. But we shouldn't write off the Russians. So I think we're going to be in a situation where neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians can actually deliver a knockout blow. And we're, we're left in a, in a nasty, hot deadlock in which one exhausted side manages to muster the forces for an offensive and they take a few villages and some square miles of territory. And then the other side manages to muster a counteroffensive that probably pushes back. In some ways, it's almost reminiscent of the trench war of World War I. And that sense of, you know, the, the, the offensives that just simply no, don't actually make any difference. You know, we may well see that rather ugly situation emerging in Ukraine, because precisely at the moment, it's hard to see any kind of peace. This is not dangerous enough for Putin to bring him down. And on the other hand, the Ukrainians are absolutely and rightly determined to defend their own motherland. I suppose the, the big question out of that is how sustainable this is for Russia. And I suppose that links to the question of how effective the sanctions are being. And we've seen the ruble stabilise a little bit after the sort of massive initial drop when the sanctions were imposed. And do you have a sense of what the current state of the Russian economy is, both in sort of numerical terms, but also in terms of, you know, the lives of ordinary people? Is that being massively affected? Oh, absolutely. I mean, people are generally feeling it. There's, there's you know, lacks of goods in the shops, prices are going up, there's certainly a lack of medicines, which is a particularly alarming thing for ordinary Russians. I mean, that said, look, we have never seen this scale of economic warfare against this size of an economy that is this integrated into the global financial and supply chains. This is not Iran. This is not North Korea. And the result is it's that classic situation where you can ask five economists what's going to happen and you will get at least six answers. <laughs> no one really knows. It looks unlikely that the Russian economy will collapse. It will be hard, but if need be, it will in effect be increasingly militarized and statist. You know, we, we may see, for example, food rationing and ration right. cards and all that kind of thing being brought back. But it's, it's unlikely to think that actually it, it will go beyond that, even if sanctions are ramped up. And even if, you know, the sort of the notional nuclear option of stopping buying Russian oil and gas, because other people will continue to be buying Russian oil and gas. There's nothing really we can do about that. The thing is, though, that how far this seriously in, impacts Putin. Putin has often made it clear that, look, the economy is for the boring technocrats below stairs to, to work out. Two vignettes that really illustrate this. One was at this televised meeting of the Security Council just before the declaration of war, which was clearly not actually about briefing the boss. It was about mutual complicity and everyone lining up to say, yes, boss, I support you. When the Prime Minister Mishustin tried to outline the economic situation, at one point the camera cut to Putin, looking so obviously bored, his fingers drumming on his desk. You know, he really just, he just didn't want to listen to this. And likewise, when the, the chair of the central bank, Elvira Nabulina, who was a very, very able manager of the macroeconomics, I mean, she's tried to re resign now three times since the invasion and been refused. But apparently she was having a video conference with Putin. And she said, look, this war is flushing the Russian economy into the sewer. And Putin terminated the meeting. You know, this is not a man who wants to hear it. Now, OK, there is a point where actually the, the economy will, will demand that you hear it, particularly if people are kind of rioting in the streets and there's no food. But as I say, I think at the moment the technocrats are going to be able to manage things so that these kind of nightmare scenarios are not going to happen. We're going to see a slow grind down rather than anything more dramatic and immediate, I suspect. So without rioting in the street, therefore? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I think... The thing is that the people power tends not to work. So if the security apparatus is disciplined and willing to obey orders and at the moment, 
it seems to be that it is. And I think people are aware of that, and therefore they know that protesting is dangerous and futile. Mm-hmm. However, what we may well see, particularly going into you know summer and and you know as it starts to get towards winter, one of the big concerns for the Russian uh, state is unemployment. Mm-hmm. It's not quite Soviet, but still, it's always prided itself on having high levels of employment. There's now concerns that unemployment could, by summer, be hitting six to eight percent, mm-hmm. which is high for Russia. And actually, increasingly, there are some people who are now projecting even 12%, 13%, which really right. would be serious. So you could start to get a whole variety of, of real you know, serious pressures. And at the same time, there clearly are tensions within the security apparatus, the, the National Guard, that is the kind of front line of, of dealing with protests, the riot cops in the streets, have actually been deployed into Ukraine and are very annoyed at being regard, you know, regarding themselves as being used as cannon fodder because they really are not geared for frontline warfare. So you might actually find that at the very time when the figures within the security apparatus who are actually beginning to reconsider their loyalties, that may well combine with when the population is feeling unhappy. And if they feel that there is an opportunity, then actually they they become emboldened. And and this is it, a a system like this, and I don't want to kind of predict any imminent change, but if we look back to 1989 in Eastern Europe Mm -hmm. and such like, these systems have a tendency to look incredibly strong and tough until all of a sudden they don't. Right. It tends to be a very rapid process because, you know, you have a, a system full of people who are not convinced Putinists. There is no such thing as Putinism. They are essentially ruthless, pragmatic opportunists. And so long as the best option seems to be remaining with the state, then that's what they'll do. But the moment that they actually feel that momentum is swinging the other way, we may well see very, very rapid defections or as happened when on the very first day of the 1991 August coup when hardliners t- took power over G- Gorbachev, the police force, for example, recorded the highest ever level of absenteeism on the grounds of illness. As everyone just thought, I think I'll sit today out and just see what tomorrow brings. So then there's going to be a lot of that kind of process potentially in the future. And presumably that's one of the objectives of these targeted sanctions at individuals to make them feel that economically they need to reconsider. Yeah, the problem is I'm not really a great fan of them. I mean, I have no problem with targeting people who have built their careers on the basis of dirty money. But if we feel that this is actually likely to have some particular kind of impact, the people who actually have real power in Russia, who are these days, frankly, the security apparatus, this has become a security state, they are not, and their families are not also with yachts in the West and such like. The oligarchs and the minigarchs who we are targeting they have no real power in Russia anymore. They know that the, the moment that they begin to look disloyal, they can, as you know, way back in the beginnings of the, of the Putin area, Mikhail Khodorkovsky found out, you know, he went from being the richest man in Russia to another convict in the dock, and then in a, a labor colony, precisely because he had pissed off the Kremlin. So I think you know, everyone actually at the moment is making a point of very visibly rallying round because at the moment, if you are a sort of a minigarch in Russia, you have no escape routes. You are now entirely a hostage of the Kremlin. Now, in, in a short history of Russia, you're actually relatively optimistic about the direction of travel of Russia, becoming recognised as a European state. Have you reconsidered as a result of this war? Well, I mean, I have the astonishing freedom of being a historian and therefore be able to say, well, I'm talking in grand generational terms. 
What's likely to happen in terms of the impact of sanctions, of isolation, and also what's happening inside the regime? In many ways, I think Putin is dragging Russia back to the 1970s. He's burning so much of the progress that's been made. And we will now have an increasingly mm. gerontocratic leadership, because they can't really afford to step down now, who are presiding over a decaying economy. And that's probably putting it politely. With an increasingly disgruntled population, who there's an immediate moment of rallying around the flag because Russian population really has no idea of what, what the war is. You know, they're being told it's a limited operation against neo-Nazis who want to commit genocide against Russians. That illusion will soon be, be broken, particularly once boys start coming back from the, from the war zone. And therefore, if, if you haven't got legitimacy, the regime will be based more on propaganda and on repression. So all very sort of similar things. So in some ways, it's terrible here and now. And look, I mean, I feel it awfully. So many of my friends have, have fled the country or are now hunkering down. They don't want to talk. They exchange the most basic emails and more on a system to say, I'm still here and still alive. And, and that's about it. You know, there is a very, very clear climate of fear. And that, that's tragic to be experiencing, even sort of secondhand as an outsider. But the point is what this opens up, because, because I don't think the system will survive. I mean, actually, I think Putin has ensured that his system will die. It means actually Russia gets a second chance. Russia gets a second chance to do the kind of proper reform that it failed to do in the 1990s. If Putin had just been a, a smarter and more Machiavellian figure, he may well have managed to basically maintain a progression so that in some ways the Putinist system survived, uh, you know, outlived Putin. As is, I don't think it will. It's going to be ugly between now and then, whenever then may be. And it may well actually be only when Putin dies that we can actually see any kind of real progress, though that might be sooner than some people were expecting. But the point is, I do believe that there is still now the chance for actually Russia to, to as I said, reclaim the stalled revolution of 1991. That was remarkably optimistic, I have to say, which is nice. I am unfashionably optimistic about Russia, yes. <laughs> now, we're, we're talking a couple of days after Viktor Orban's victory in the Hungarian election. And presumably that's an outcome that gives Putin a bit of sucker, gives him a sort of reliable ally within the European Union. And do you think Putin still has a policy objective of sort of destabilising and dividing the European Union? And do you think Orban is one of his tools in doing that? I absolutely think that that's an objective of the Kremlin, more so now than ever before. I mean, I think the thing is that their assumption is that the West is comprised of attention deficit disorder societies, that today they can be mobilized behind a particular policy. And they can, you know, in extreme cases, be, be very sort of focused and disciplined, as we're seeing with the sanctions regime, which is frankly, much more substantial and much more unified than anyone really expected. But that tomorrow or next week or next month, some new crisis will emerge, there'll be turmoil in the Middle East or North Africa or whatever. And all of a sudden, they will, you know, the West gets distracted. And that's the point when they will particularly be sort of deploying their disinformation and subversion and whatever to try and encourage that. Because they can't create atmospheres and moods and situations, but what they can do is try and magnify them. But when we come to someone like Viktor Orban, and look, I mean, it pains me deeply to be saying anything even faintly positive about Viktor Orban. But nonetheless, I mean, I think we have to realize this is not as if he is Putin's man. This is, in fact, someone, a very wily political operator who appreciates the advantage in being able to in way, create some kind of fake equivalence between Brussels and Moscow and to try and play one off against the other. You know, Viktor Orban is not there to do favours for Putin. 
Viktor Orban is there to, where appropriate, use the presence of Putin as a way of trying to bring pressure to bear on, on Brussels in a, in a very different way from what we actually see happening in Poland, where there actually the sort of the Polish government uses its position as we are the front line in the battle for civilization against the barbaric Asiatic hordes of Russia. And that's why you shouldn't be questioning what we're doing with our judges or, or whatever else. These are very, very pragmatic interactions. And I do think that Putin's brand is getting you know, daily more and more toxic. And it will be that much harder to play that particular card, at least for the moment. And there are at least signs, I think, that within the West, Hungary is coming to be seen as a very, very significant potential problem and even a security threat in the sense that you see sort of reports in the press that there are conversations going on about, you know, can we have this guy around the table when we're talking about Putin? I mean, whose side is he on? And I think it might be that Orban has to recalculate a little bit, given the strength of feeling over Ukraine. This notion of Orban as a security threat, I think, is worth dwelling on for a moment. Because at the very time when whatever it actually turns out to mean, Europe is talking much more seriously about itself as a security actor. You know, we have this new security compass notion. There's a whole debate now about, uh, you know, EU armed forces of some kind, which, let's be perfectly honest, just simply means the same soldiers who at other times are either national or NATO. Now they will have a third beret they can perhaps put on. It's not, it doesn't actually mean there's going to be any more soldiers around. But nonetheless, you know, because this is now getting real yeah. and because it's become clear that however much you can talk about yourself as a regulatory superpower, that only matters if you are in Brussels. No one else is thinking, well, we can't mess with the Europeans because they are a regulatory superpower. In that context, issues of unity and issues of, kind of potential fifth columns will become that much more important in actually thinking about how the European Union proceeds. Particularly if they come under pressure from the United States, I imagine, which could happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a clear degree of annoyance in some circles in, in D.C., about the European Union. Obviously, that's particularly directed towards France and Germany for different reasons. You know, Macron's grandstanding and his desire to sort of try and present himself as the crucial interlocutor. The Americans definitely have made it clear that they regarded that often being very unhelpful. Although the Germans have now made this very kind of dramatic shift back towards, let's say, a remilitarization, because that makes it sound too negative, but let's say stopping the old policy of basically being freeloadings on everyone else's security capabilities. You know, now they're actually talking about doing something seriously. But at the same time, there is clear reluctance. There was you know, the foot dragging over Nord Stream 2 pipeline. There's still a heavy dependence upon Russian oil, oil and above all gas, and a desire to not have to do anything immediate about that. So yes, I think the, you know, the Americans are going to be saying, okay, when does Europe properly step up? And in some ways, Britain's very active position over Ukraine has, I think, helped dramatise this. It has been both, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's an entirely moral position to support Ukraine as forcefully as Britain has. But it's also worth noting that it has also had a particular geopolitical dividend in terms of contrasting what, what Brexit Britain can do against these hidebound Europeans. In many ways, they played it very, very well in foreign policy terms. Though, as you say, you know, leaving aside genuine beliefs politically, this has played quite well for them. Just a final thing on, on Russia. Do you think there's a wariness in the Kremlin about becoming too dependent on China? Because that's one of the potential outcomes of this, isn't it? Is that China becomes the major ally, the major market, the major trading partner. Is that a prospect that would be welcomed in the Kremlin? It's an interesting issue because to me, it very much highlights a, a generational 
process that is taking place within the Russian leadership. I mean, first of all, look, it's clear that absolutely Russia will become increasingly dependent upon China, even though China has not really been particularly helpful to the Russians, certainly not up to now. You know, remember, I mean, China, it never even acknowledged the annexation of Crimea in 2014, and it clearly does not want to get involved at the moment, in part because it has a lot of investments in Ukraine. It imports corn from Ukraine, well, imported. So, you know, it, it has concerns. And for all the fact that when Xi Jinping and Putin met, they declared that they had a friendship without limits. Frankly, from Moscow's point of view, it's turning out to be that they are friends without benefits. <laughs> so, you know, China's not been a great friend, but nonetheless, Moscow realizes it needs China. The more it's ostracized, the more it's con constrained and hemmed in economically as well as politically by the West, the more it will have to depend on China. Putin himself does not seem, or I've seen no evidence to suggest that he seems to regard it as a problem. And that might be simply because in some ways China is tomorrow's problem, but the West is today's and you focus on today's problem. And it might also be that, frankly, if you are 69 and a half years old, you don't necessarily have quite the same time frame that you're looking at. What I found quite striking, especially when I was actually in Moscow and in a position to talk to people, or that they were willing to talk to me, the 50-somethings and the early 60-somethings within the system. So in other words, the next generation who expect to take over, they are absolutely concerned about China. It's interesting. And they're much, much more wary of that. And I remember talking once to, he was a retired um, senior military officer who had been in the general staff. And this was about five years ago. And he said, look, in 20 years' time, Russia will have had to have chosen between being an ally of the West of some kind or a vassal of China of some kind. And I think that's the very stark choice that they feel they face. Now, finally, I think one of the outcomes of this podcast is going to be loads of our listeners are going to be interested in following your work. Is the best way to do that to follow you on Twitter or is there a website they can go to or... I mean, I have my blog in Moscow Shadows, but I don't tend to use that much these days. There is, as you said, my podcast also in Moscow Shadows. But generally, although to a large extent I hate Twitter, it has become the best way of communicating. So yes, at Mark Galliotti on Twitter is probably the best thing to, to follow what I write and what I do. Well, there you go, everyone. There's a tip for you. If you follow Mark on Twitter, it's well, well worth your while because, as you've just heard, he is utterly fascinating on these subjects. Mark, thank you so much for giving us the time. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. 